I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. certainly want to thank the trio for singing for us today. And uh, Miss Geraldine, it's good to see you in God's house today. And good for you to be able to hear your daughter play. And uh, a blessing, blessing to all of us. And thank you, Marcia and Teresa, for... Uh, you know, one of the great things about uh, those musical portions we have during the offering is those, I don't know about you, but don't the words kind of run through your mind as you hear the melody and you just, you're just reminded of the grandness of some of those great old songs. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. I have a question for you today. What single Bible verse best encompasses the true meaning of Christmas. I submit to you that verse may not be found in the Gospels of Matthew or Luke. I submit to you that verse just might be found in one of Paul's letters. His letter to young Timothy, the first letter in chapter 1 and verse 15. Before we read it, let's consider this. According to Business Insider... For the third year in a row, millennials, not picking on millennials, just saying, okay. For the third year in a row, millennials who participated in the World Economic Forum's Global Shapers Survey in 2017, their results for 2018 are not in yet. But but this survey of millennials was taken uh, and it uh, it was discovered that they believe climate change is the most serious issue affecting the world today. Climate change. Millennials were also concerned about wars and discrimination and poverty and religious conflicts, political corruption, hunger, and a lack of progress and education across our world. Do you believe climate change is the single greatest problem facing the world today? Personally, I I don't know if the climate is getting colder or hotter. I, I don't know if climate change is real or not because I'm not a climate scientist. But I do know this. Climate change is not the greatest problem facing the world today. The greatest problem facing the world today is something called sin. And sin has been the world's greatest problem since Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden fruit. The reason for that is because sin lies behind every evil with which the world struggles. So I want us to think about that, and I want us to work our way toward Christmas. But let's begin by asking, what is sin? And I plan to give you, I think, a pretty, pretty full definition of it this morning. Sin is, first and foremost, rejecting and rebelling against God. The children of Israel confessed to Moses in the wilderness In Numbers chapter 21, 
we have sinned. You know, they were constantly complaining about what God was not doing for them and what Moses was incapable of doing himself. And, and they were complaining and God had, uh, had brought uh, punishment upon them or correction upon them. And they cried out to Moses and they said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. Sin is rejecting and rebelling against God. Sin is rejecting the sovereign and rightful authority of Almighty God over all of His creation. He is sovereign and He has a right to be in charge. He is in charge and yet sin rejects that authority. Sin is failing to love God and to love our neighbors. Sin is choosing Satan's hatred over God's love. Sin is rebelling against the holy nature of our perfect God. Sin is corrupting our hearts and minds with human pride and lust. Sin is falling short, falling short of the glory and the rightful requirements of our God. Sin is breaking the laws that God has established for us as mankind. We break those laws time and time again. Sin is doing evil. But sin is also failing to do good. Sin is refusing to believe and to trust in the God of this universe. Sin is choosing to worship something or someone else other than God. Sin is rejecting God's wonderful and gracious offer of salvation. Sin is so many things. Furthermore... Now that we know what sin is, we need to be also reminded that it is universal. We're all born with a sin nature. And the moment that we're old enough to choose between good and evil, we act on that old sinful nature and we choose to think and to speak and to do ungodly sinful things. We're born with a sin nature. As much as I love my little granddaughter, she was born with a sin nature. And as soon as she's old enough to choose between good and evil, she will choose to do that which is evil. That's the way it is with sin. And there's not a single exception anywhere in this world. As sinners, we are proud and we are arrogant. Not long ago, I mentioned to you the story of uh, the prodigal son. And I, I told you, that the prodigal son's problem was he thought he knew better than his father. And that's the very nature of sin. Sin is, is, is saying, God, I know better than you and I will run my own life as I see fit. It's universal. We're all that way. We're all prodigals. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Not some, not most, not everyone but twelve. We've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Now, some people obviously live uh, more uh, law-abiding lives than others. But we're all sinners. Every single one of us. Uh, There's not a righteous man on earth who continually day after day, moment after moment, does good and never sins. There's not one other than Christ. And so we see a definition of sin. It is rejecting and rebelling against God. And we see it's universal. Everyone is is afflicted with this. 
And the next, we learn that the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages or the result or the consequent of sin is death. Romans 5.12 puts it this way. Just as through one man, the man Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. It's genetic. It is passed down from one generation to the next and the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul who sins will die. Sin brings on with it both physical and spiritual death. Those who die in their sins must be eternally separated from God, from heaven and from all that is good. Why is that? Why must there be a separation between God and heaven and all that's good and those sinners who die in their sin. Why must it be that there is a separation? And that's because sin is the most destructive, deadly force in the universe. Imagine a plague spreading across the world which is 100% fatal. That's exactly what sin is. Sin is like a destructive and deadly plague. So again, imagine a plague spreading across the world that is 100% fatal. Now let's say, let's say that a medication is discovered, an antidote is discovered, something like a vaccine is discovered that will cure this plague that is 100% fatal, that is spreading across the globe. You'd think everyone would want to receive such a medication. And yet the Bible is clear and experience is clear that some people don't want the medicine. Some people don't want it. I want the medicine. Not long, somewhere around the time that Vivian retired, she had an unfortunate experience. She got the shingles. And I saw her suffering with the shingles. And lo, it was not good. And uh, I saw the pain. and My memory went back to something my mother told me. My mother told me that there's a relationship between shingles and chicken pox. And then I began to hear, if you've ever had chicken pox, well, then you can get the shingles. And Vivian said, I don't know why I'm getting the shingles. I don't really remember having the chicken pox. It must have been a very light case. Well, obviously she did have the chicken pox at one time. And it must have been a very light case. And then I remembered that my mother, who used to take me to Dr. Bridges in Tifton, Georgia, said that Dr. Bridges told her on one occasion, I had the worst case of chicken pox he had seen in his entire medical career. So I said, well, Vivian had the shingles, not a real, real bad case, but she had the shingles and she had the chicken pox, not a real, real bad case. I had the chicken pox, and it was the worst case that the doctor had ever seen. 
would that mean that I'd have the worst case of shingles the doctor had ever seen? Boy, I got to hearing about that shingle shot. And the first chance I got, I went and got the shingle shot. But did you know that the shingle shot, the old one, is about somewhere 50, 60% effective? Well, they came out with a new shingle shot. And it's over 90% effective. And I've gotten, I went and talked to my doctor when I had my checkup. And I said to my doctor, I says, can you give me a prescription for the new shingle shot? You know, that's over 90% effective. He says, sure. So I got the prescription for the new shingle shot. And I'm not much on shots, but I can't wait to take it. In fact, I left his office and I went to the pharmacy and said, give me, give me, give me the new shingle shot. The lady said, well, you know, it's, it's Christmas and at the end of the year, a lot of medications become a little hard to get because of inventory issues. And she said, you'll have to wait till January. So I'm living on borrowed time. I need the shingle shot. And I've got my little prescription in my wallet. And I've alerted my pharmacist. And the moment the shingle shot comes to CVS... I'm running as fast as I can run. And I'm going to hold out my arm and say, give me that shot. I don't want the shingles. And yet, imagine the dismay that there would be a disease that's 100% fatal spreading across the world. And some would say, I don't want the medicine. I don't want the vaccine. But if the plague is to be stopped, then those who refuse the medication must be separated from those who are willing to receive the medication. Because you see, if the entire population is not treated, then that disease is going to manifest itself again. The plague would return. You can see the analogy. Today the earth is infected thoroughly with a plague of sin and, and the wages of sin is death. With all the problems that we face here on the earth, all those problems are the direct or indirect result of sin. Behind every murder, every robbery, every act of adultery, behind greed and poverty and wars and hatred and division and lust and deceit and envy and pride... You name it, every problem we face is ultimately the result of sin. Now fortunately, heaven is a sin-free zone. In heaven there is no sin. In heaven there is a gate that separates heaven from any presence of sin. Heaven is a sin-free zone. So one day God is going to destroy this old earth and he's going to start over. Listen to these words from 2 Peter and chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and goodness or godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Not a place of sin, these new heavens and the new earth. But even with the old earth destroyed, the souls of the wicked still present a problem. And you say, well, how can that be? And that's because souls are eternal. It doesn't matter whether you're lost or whether you're saved. Your soul continues after you die. The difference is where it continues. For the lost, their soul will continue in a place called hell, a place of separation. For the saved, their souls will continue in a place called heaven. Sin-sick souls cannot live in the new heaven and the new earth. Otherwise, they would contaminate the new creation with their old sin. And we'd be right back where, we're, where we started from. And so there has to be a separation. The Bible says that God plans to take all of those who refuse his soul-saving cure, his soul-saving medicine, his soul-saving vaccine. He's going to take all of those who refuse that. And he's going to isolate them in a place called the lake of fire. Now, this is not something that God does because he's a hateful God. It's something God does because he loves you. And he wants to protect you from dealing with having to deal with sin all over again. Well, what does all this have to do with Christmas? Everything. One of the most powerful Christmas verses in the Bible is really rarely read at Christmas. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. You have it there in your Bibles. Look at it with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And that was Paul's testimony to Timothy. It's a trustworthy statement. It's true. You can count on it. You can trust in it. Christ Jesus did what? He came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Jesus Christ came into the world. What does that mean? It means that he was residing in heaven. That's the message of Christmas, that Jesus Christ residing in heaven Set aside the glory and splendor of heaven. And he put on human flesh. And he came in the form of a baby. He came to this earth to save sinners like you and me. That's the message of the incarnation. Jesus has brought to earth the life-saving medication needed for a world plagued with sin. And that medication is his blood Just consider with me from the word of God, these things said of the blood of Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal or sinful way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with what? Precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says of Jesus Christ, He loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. 1 John chapter 1 verse 7, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, In Jesus Christ we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Then Jesus writes or says in John chapter 6, verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What a wonderful promise this blood of Christ offers to us. And we don't always think about that when we're looking at the little baby Jesus lying in the manger. But he came to this earth to live a perfect life. And to die a perfect death so that by that blood we might be saved from the penalty and the plague of sin. Listen, the real meaning of Christmas is not something you and I do. As much as we hear about, you know, the Christmas spirit and doing nice things for one another. And we share gifts and we do kind things for our neighbors and we visit the nursing homes and, and we visit the homebound and we try to show the love of Jesus to all these people. But listen, it's not about us loving one another. It's not about us being together as a family and doing family traditions. I love my family. I have my son here this morning. I have my wife. We have a small family, but we have a family that loves one another very, very much. It's not about those traditions. We went shopping yesterday. I told the folks at 8.15, I'm paying the price for it, uh, but um, uh, I had to work yesterday morning here at the church, and we left about lunchtime, and we got back from Jacksonville at midnight. Six o'clock, the alarm clock rang and said, it's time to get up. I didn't want to, but I needed to. And the little devil, you know, in my head says, well, this is probably about the last time you're going to preach a Sunday morning sermon. You know, what's, what's the big deal? Sleep in. See what happens. I wouldn't do that to you. I wouldn't do that to the 815 crowd. But listen, I love being with my family. And this is our first Christmas with our granddaughter. What a great thing that is. And I'm going to love it. But... Christmas is about more. It's not about charity and good deeds. It's not about peace on earth in the way most people think about peace. It's not about Santa Claus. It's not about gift giving or Rudolph or Frosty or Jingle Bells. It's not even about the shepherds or the wise men, although they're part of this wonderful story. These things have their place. And I'm not here to say you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. But I'm here to say that Christmas is first and foremost about God's solution to the greatest problem that we face. And the greatest problem we face is not like that group of millennials believe. It's not global warming. It's not the government shutdown. It's not the national debt. It's not cancer. It's not political corruption. It's none of those things. The greatest problem we face is sin. And it's always been that way. The ultimate Christmas verse is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, because it says it is a trustworthy statement 
deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners among whom I'm the foremost of all. And you know, sometimes I'm reading that, that the Apostle Paul wrote, and I'm just saying, that that's my life? You see, I really don't know anyone's sin but my own. And as, as, as David said, my sin is ever before me. And to think that Christ Jesus came into this world and died for me, died on the cross in my place, paid for my penalty of sin. It's just an astonishing, amazing thing. What does it mean to say Jesus came into the world? I mentioned a little bit about it earlier. It means that the second person of the Godhead left the splendor and power of heaven to put on human flesh so that he could come to this earth and live a perfect life and die in our place on the cross and pay the penalty of our sin to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's called the incarnation. It's Jesus putting on human flesh and coming to this world to to live a perfect life and die in our place. It's why the scripture calls Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. God came down to be with us, to die for us. Jesus came down to the earth from heaven and became one of us, fully divine, but like us, fully human. John 1.14 says of Jesus and the Word, literally the Logos, Logos, another name for Jesus Christ, and the Word, Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 John 4.14 says of Jesus, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Philippians 2.5 says, Jesus Christ, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched or held on to at all costs. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus did that for you and for me. Galatians 4 and verse 4 says, When the fullness of time came, and by the way, I'm listening to the Billy Graham channel. I don't know if you have XM radio or Sirius or whatever it is, but they have the Billy Graham channel that's been playing since I think he he passed away. And they've been playing these old sermons, and I heard him read this grand old text. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus Christ came down from heaven, and he put on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place, and he rose from the dead. So we might be forgiven, and so we might be cleansed and transformed and granted eternal life. That's Christmas. The message of Christmas is the most important message the world has ever heard. And that message is that Jesus came into this world to save sinners among whom I feel like the foremost of all. And that's why it's so important that we take this message to the world. Because Jesus didn't just come to save me and my family or you and your family. Jesus came to save whosoever would 
say to him, I repent of my sins, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and life and save my soul. The sad thing is we've allowed the traditions of Christmas to drown out the truth of Christmas. We've allowed the traditions of Christmas, and some of them are fine, but we've allowed the traditions of Christmas to drown out the truth of Christmas. We have Christmas because God saw that we needed a Savior. And we needed a Savior because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. He is our Christmas. And without Him, there is no hope for any of us. Usually on Sunday morning, I get up early and I take my shower and I get ready for the 815 service. And sometimes I'll have just a minute or two and I'll check and check the news to see if there's anything I need to be aware of before I come to the church. This morning I turned on my little smartphone and I hit my little Google button and the little Google page came up. And you know they have uh, their name in, I guess, primary colors across their little page, the Google page. And every now and then, they'll do something different with it. They'll have a Google Doodle. And the Doodle is that little funny picture, sometimes in the shape of the letters of Google. And they recognize all kinds of people on their birthday, and they recognize certain accomplishments and the anniversary of certain events and so forth. And this morning, the Google Doodle was Santa Claus flying across the sky with his sleigh and his reindeer. That was the Google Doodle. And it got me thinking. Seems like every year at Christmas, the Google Doodle has something to do with Santa Claus. And so they have another feature on Google that allows you to search for the doodles. And you can go back and you can go through their archives of all the doodles that they've ever had. And some of those doodles are repeated over and over again each year. Like, for instance, on President's uh, birthday, you know, there'll be one of the pictures of the president, like Abraham Lincoln, or there'll be uh, George Washington. And some pretty obscure people, people I've never heard of, are on the Google Doodle. And every year it seems like Santa Claus is on the Google Doodle. So I wondered, I wonder if Jesus has ever been on the Google Doodle. So I went back and searched. And the answer was no. Google has never celebrated Christ. Every year, Santa celebrated. But Jesus is never celebrated by the smart people at Google. So what does that have to do with anything? I suppose this could be my last sermon as your pastor behind this desk. I'll have the devotional tonight. I'll be on vacation next Sunday and Brother Jonathan will be preaching. And then the next Sunday after that is my last Sunday officially as your pastor. And I think there was some concern I might really get down on y'all 
And so they asked that they have another person coming in to speak in my stead that, that morning. So this is the last time, you know, that I, that I get to talk with you in this capacity as your pastor on a Sunday morning. And I'll tell you something that's really heavy on my heart. It seems like with every passing generation in America, there's a little less of Jesus and a little more of something else about Christmas. I'm not here to pick on Santa Claus, but it seems like every year there's a little less Jesus and a little more Santa Claus. Every year there's a little less Jesus and a little more Frosty the Snowman. Every Christmas, there's a little less Jesus and a little more Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Every Christmas, it seems like there's a little less Jesus and a little more Black Friday, a little more Christmas sale. What I'm saying is this. Jesus will be minimized and trivialized every single year unless you, unless you do your part. The people at Google are never going to give glory to Christ until the day that they face Him in judgment. And the Bible says every knee will bow then. But you see, Google is not going to glorify Christ. They're going to glorify things about Christmas, but not Christ. The only one who can glorify Christ in your family is you. And it just seems to me as I'm living out my life and, and celebrating 65 years on this planet, that it just seems like we're doing a little, a little less with each successive generation to pass down the glorious truth of Christmas, and that is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, among whom we are foremost of all. And so with each passing generation, there's a little less said about Jesus. And so our great-great-grandparents, you know, that was pretty much Christmas. It was just all Jesus. With each generation, a little less Jesus. Because somehow or another, we didn't see the importance of passing on the primary message of the gospel. And now we've got some kids in our generation who've never even heard of Jesus. What's to become of their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids and their great-great-grandkids? So that's where I leave you, church. Look around you. Look at all. Now, I know we have two worship services. But look at all the empty spots in the church. You know, there's a time when churches were full every single Sunday. But there's less and less of that. And it's because we pass down a little less of Jesus every generation and a little more of the world. And one day, there's going to be a little child somewhere 
in America who's never heard the name of Jesus. In fact, that day probably already exists. My challenge to you is grab hold of the gospel and pass it down from generation to generation to generation. I had a wonderful privilege this week. Didn't tell the 815 crowd about this, but I had a wonderful privilege this week to sit down with a mom and a dad and their young son. And I got to hear how this dad has sat down with his son and shown him what it takes to become a Christian. Because his son had asked his dad, Dad, how can I be saved? And the father knew how to answer the question. And so we were there celebrating it and reviewing the power of the gospel story. And I'm just telling you, you got to pass the message down. Because the people at Google won't do what needs to be done. But God's not depending on the people at Google. God's depending on you. Don't falter in your responsibility. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. And we thank you so much for the beautiful message of Christmas that Jesus Christ came to this earth to save sinners. I'm so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you saw fit to save my soul. God, I pray in the days and the years perhaps that I have left, that I will do a better job of passing down the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we all do that. And if there's one here this morning who has never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray today will be the day that they would repent of sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What a glorious Christmas that would make it. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? So oftentimes when I get up here and I lead in this this prayer before the invitation, I'm trying to think of what I should pray for and what I should encourage people to do. Lord, would you just do that this morning? Would you do what you do best? Would you just speak to our hearts and ask us or tell us what we need to do this Christmas to make sure that the gospel message is clearly presented in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our community for generations to come. In Jesus' name we offer our prayer. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.